Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Many leaders talk about changing the culture of their organizations, but I don't think it's going to surprise you that very few succeed. So today we're going to focus on the practices uncovered in one of the largest studies ever conducted to figure out what actually works. And in addition, we're going to talk about the culture and the challenge of returning to office. And we're going to talk about what not to do if you want to keep your talent and you want to keep your culture. So with me today is Kevin Oakes. He's CEO and co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, I4CP. And I encourage you to say that five times loudly, I4CP which is the leading authority on next practices in human capital. And importantly for today, he's the author of a book called Cultural Renovation. It's the number one new release in a dozen Amazon book categories. And he draws on data from one of these large studies that he has done around corporate culture and details how high-performance organizations like Microsoft, T-Mobile, AbbVie, MasterCard, and a whole lot more have actually succeeded in changing their organizational culture. Now, Kevin is not just a consultant. Previously, he was founder and president of the Sum Total Systems, which he helped create in 2003 by merging with Click to Learn um, and Do- Docent. I guess they, I don't quite know all the sequence there, but they've all come together to make this fabulous new business. He's currently on the board of Performative and on the advisory boards of a number of other companies. He was on the board of Knowledge Advisors, Workforce Insight, and Kuru, and he's the chairman of Jambok, which is a social learning startup company founded by Sun Microsystems and then purchased by Success Factors. So, Kevin's clearly been in this space for a long time, watching organizations, watching human capital, and studying what does and doesn't work. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wanda. Glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. And I am delighted to hear somebody finally tell me what is it going to take to make organizational cultural change happen. Before I go there, though, what fascinates you? Why do you study organizations and cultures? You know, I've, I've uh, as you noted, Wanda, been in the human capital space for a long time. And one of the things I've always noticed is that companies that either improve their culture or have a, a good, solid, healthy culture generally have good financial results. It's very uh, unusual for a company to have a really crappy culture, an unhealthy culture, yet have great products and services and great financial um, success as a result. Uh, it 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 can happen, but it almost never does happen that way. And <clears throat> the way to ha- have a, a healthy financial company is to first fix the culture. And you know, as I looked out at what is being written on culture, and as my research team uh, looked at different culture um, essays and white papers and studies, we found that there wasn't a whole lot of practical, tactical advice on how do you mm-hmm. change culture. And and that's what I get from CEOs all the time is. I understand intellectually that culture is important, but how do I change it? And you know, what do I do to, to make a difference? 
that resonates with what I hear from people because I think most CEOs in one form or another are talking about a cultural transformation, whether that's a digital format, a virtual format, a flexible format, uh, something other format that that is top of mind on CEOs. But you certainly don't see an awful lot of how-to manuals, short of the classic change management processes that we've seen all the way along. No comments about those either. Right, right. (laughs) So you set out to do a bunch of research on this one. Give us a bit of the background on the research. And I know this isn't the only area. You look at next practices in general in the human capital space. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the company. So I uh, I agree that saying I4CP three times or five times fast is impossible. It's a lot of numbers <laughs> and letters, but uh, we're doing more human capital research than just about anybody on the planet, always with a business lens of what are high-performing organizations doing differently with their people practices versus low-performing organizations. And so we study a wide variety of human capital topics, everything from recruiting to retention to compensation and benefits to learning and development to diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is one of our biggest categories. Um, but we, uh, we got fascinated by culture. As, we, as I said earlier, we looked at a lot of different studies that are out there, and we recognized that culture change, while it wasn't really being covered as much as a topic... Um, it was something that we found companies had a real struggle with. In fact, most companies who set out to change their culture fail. Um, we found in our research, but I've seen this in other studies, that only about 15%, 1-5% of companies who try to change their culture actually will say it was a success. And so we wanted to hone in on those companies that had success and find out, was there a commonality or was there some kind of blueprint Uh, that we could map to, that other companies could learn from and how you change their culture. And uh, that's what the impetus was for the study to begin with. And that is what we found. We found there was some commonalities, there was a blueprint. And from it came out with 18 action steps that organizations could take very definitively uh, to have positive impact to their culture. So before I go into the 18, how many studies did you look at? I mean, what's the sample base? Um, is it all North American? Is it global? Yeah, global. And I, I, there are hundreds of studies, uh, Wanda. I know I've read, I've read many, many studies personally, but so has the research team. And uh, there's been a lot written about culture over time, but so much of it is ethereal. It it's, tends to stay at the 30,000-foot view. Yeah. And people love to say how hard it is and how – you know, how tough it is to make any changes to culture and how amorphous it is. And that's not what CEOs want to hear. CEOs who are running a company want to understand, uh, you know, I need to make some changes here. And clearly there must be some, you know, good examples that I can follow in how I make those changes. My, my father, in fact, uh, was a CEO of a company uh, quite some years ago, an insurance company in uh, New England. And after I started writing the book, he and I got into a conversation about culture. And he said, boy, when I, when I came into that company, I felt like the culture was in the woodwork. It was just so embedded that I didn't know what to do. Now that I'm hearing from you and later as he read the book, he realizes there's so many things that I could have, I could have done in that company if I had had that information ahead of time. So right. that's really what we wanted to set out to do with the research study and, and with the book itself. Okay. All right. Fair enough. 
So tell me a little bit then about these 18 practices. I know in particular, you drill them down to three broad categories. So kind of help us get a lay of the land of what these 18 practices are about. And first, let me address the title of the study and and of the book itself. Um, A lot of people, when they talk about culture change, they use the term culture transformation. Mm -hmm. And initially, that's what we were using too, Wanda. We were we were calling this culture transformation, but as we got into the the research and started looking at some of the case studies, it became painfully clear to me and the research team, none of these companies transformed themselves. They didn't completely remake who they were. They didn't start from scratch. Instead, they were very thoughtful about keeping what made them unique, keeping about keeping what made them good to begin with. A lot of times it was their original purpose, their values, and they renovated for the future. And we we felt renovation was just a much better term to talk about culture change uh, overall with. And, and I've had that comment from many, many companies since the book has been published. And so keeping with that renovation theme, we looked at those 18 action steps and divided them into three phases that you mentioned. The first one is called plan. The second one is build And the last one is maintain. And it's much like an old house that you're renovating. You want to keep what's unique and and, uh, what's hard to replace, uh, but you want to increase its value over time. You wouldn't run into that house and start knocking down walls without planning first. You might take down a load-bearing wall. The same uh, analogy applies to companies. You can't just leap into a company and start changing things and knocking things down without potentially doing serious damage, long-term damage to that company. And so those phases are very intentional, and uh, we walk the reader through each one of those phases and each one of the steps to make sure that as a company, you're doing the same thing you want to do with that old house, and that's really increase its value long-term. Okay, great. So can you give me an example of a company that you would say had succeeded? And just tell me a little bit about the story of what they went from to to... And then we'll yeah, come back absolutely. to the 18 steps. Well, the, um, the company I profile uh, quite a bit right that at the beginning of the book is Microsoft. And I think Microsoft, whether you're a big company or a small company, is a great example to follow for how do you uh, effectively change uh, culture and be successful at it. Um, I take the reader back to days before Satya Nadella became CEO because I think it's important to remember what Microsoft was like back then and what Satya faced coming in as the CEO. And during Steve Ballmer's years as CEO, those were rare, those were pretty rough years for, uh, for Microsoft. Um, You know, he took over right at the dot-com crash and unfortunately had to shepherd Microsoft, not only through that, but also through the 2008, 2009 financial downturn. Uh, But during that time, they also lost out on a lot of innovations um, to to Apple, you know, with um, with phones and, you know, even before that with uh, the the iPad and with the iPod. Microsoft had invented a lot of that stuff before Apple did, but Apple perfected it and um, took a lot of market share away from them. And it still, I think, to this day, stings that they never were able to figure out mobile, uh, for instance, and, and never became a prominent mobile player. But the same thing happened with Google. You know, Google came in with a, a search engine uh, business model that was quite different than what Microsoft had had and took tons of market share away from Microsoft. And we could go on and on. Those are the obvious examples, but they lost out on a lot of um, innovations and really executing on those innovations. 
Uh, and so as a result, a lot of people were predicting Microsoft was going to be like Sears. You know, they would just go by the wayside, you know, if you will, and, uh, you know, become a, a, a company without creativity, without innovation. They also had a, a very cutthroat culture. Um, I, I profiled uh, some of their performance management practices, but they had a practice internally that other companies have also done in the past which is stack ranking uh, employees. And so as a manager, you'd have to list out your, your direct reports, you know, one through 10, 10 being the worst. Um, and with the, the idea was you would lop off the bottom, you know, 10 to 15%. And while at a high level, maybe that's a little attractive and, you know, sounds like you can get rid of some of the low performers in the organization through the performance practice, in reality, what it does is pit your employees against each other. And so, you know, their, their goal was not to join forces and beat Apple or beat Google. It was to be better than each other. And so as a result, they withheld knowledge from each other. And, you know, there was a lot of backstabbing that was happening. And so Microsoft was uh, in the doldrums um, in the 2013-2014 timeframe. And Bomber decided to step down. And that began a year-long search for a new CEO. And they settled on Satya, which was a great choice. Satya is the only CEO they've had that's grown up through the company. He came through the engineering group, and uh, he understood some of the cultural challenges of the company. But he said in his very first shareholder meeting and kind of right out of the gate that if we're going to uh, dominate again, we have to fix the culture of this organization. And so he embraced the HR team and particularly uh, Kathleen Hogan, who's the head of HR there, who he put into place there. And together they set out to, uh, to renovate the overall organization and renovate that culture. And they adopted a, um, a mantra, which will forever be associated with this culture change called growth mindset. And it came from a book that Satya's wife had given to him from Carol Dweck, who's a professor at Stanford called Mindset. But the concept of growth mindset is that uh, skills and capabilities aren't necessarily innate. They can be taught. They can be learned. Um, he, he's very vocal about learning from mistakes. And that was something that Microsoft did not have a culture of before. If you made a mistake, you were largely chastised for that mistake. Uh, whereas today, if somebody makes a mistake, they use it as a learning tool and, and a learning moment. But most importantly, he adopted a mentality that he wants everyone in the company to be learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. And it's no longer knowledge is power. It's that knowledge sharing is power. And Sati is a big learner. He reads a lot of books and takes a lot of courses. But he wanted to adopt that learning mentality throughout the organization, and he did. And so that growth mindset uh, has really changed the way those Microsoft employees treat each other. They obviously got rid of that performance uh, system where you know everybody was backstabbing each other, and the 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 results. You just need to look at the stock price to see the results. They just cleared two trillion in market cap recently. They're the second most valuable company in the world. Uh, for a point in time, they were the most valuable company in the world. Uh, and nobody's talking about Microsoft being a Sears anymore, right? Microsoft is one of the most powerful companies we have uh, in existence. And uh, so much of it is attributed to what he's done with the culture. Right. And you certainly don't hear the stories you heard in the older days, not that this was that long ago, but, you know, 10 years ago about how brutal it was to be at Microsoft or how arrogant people from Microsoft could be. 
you're not, I'm not sure that I'm hearing the reverse stories, but I'm certainly not hearing those old stories about how bad it is to be. So oh, something I'm hearing, worked. Yeah. And, and I'm hearing the reverse stories. I, I don't live too far from Microsoft's campus, but they will talk about people as well. They have the old mentality um, as opposed to the new mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today it is a much gentler, more cooperative organization and people are excited about the future, where before they were very mm-hmm. pessimistic overall as a culture. Great. Great. Okay. So help us then understand these 18 principles. So you've got plan, so I know which walls I'm taking down. I've got mm-hmm. build, and I've got maintain. Right. And I think maybe the easiest way, because each one of them stacks under, or there are six that stacked under each. Let's talk about one under the plan side that sort of you think is the essence well, I'll start with the you know, step one is uh, develop and deploy a comprehensive listening strategy. And I state right at the beginning of the book, the worst thing that a senior leadership can do is lock themselves in a conference room and decide amongst themselves what the culture is today and what needs to change tomorrow, because they're going to get it wrong. Uh, so much is filtered by the time it reaches the leadership team. And they you know, they, in any company, you just generally don't know what's happening at the ground level unless you ask, unless you listen. And so the smart companies uh, had comprehensive surveying and other listening strategies to really understand from an employee sentiment perspective, what are the issues? You know, what's going well? What's not going well? What do we need to fix? What do we need to keep? Uh, and the most successful companies took that very seriously uh, I'm I'm seeing the same thing happen right now as companies as we're emerging from the pandemic. Uh, you know, companies are beginning to listen to their workforce to understand what are their work preferences. You know, what, how do they want to work going forward? And frankly, there are com- there are other companies who are not listening to the workforce and just making policy decisions. And ultimately, it's going to hurt their culture. In fact, I'm seeing it happen already in certain companies where it's hurting their culture. So that's the first step in the plan phase. There's a, a number of other really interesting steps there. But um, I think that one you can't omit. So we're talking about this in terms of culture. But I'm going to ta- say anybody out there leading any size of organization looking at change in any format, whether it's you walking in as a new leader or a new manager, whether it's uh, shifting your strategy, whether it's refreshing your strategy, changing your culture, whatever it is, one of the smartest things to do always is to ask people what they think. And I'm astounded regularly at how hard that seems to be for people to do, like they feel like they're somehow inadequate if they don't already have all the answers. Yeah, that's right. Okay. There is another step I do want to highlight because I think it's important and it kind of bridges the plan and the build phase. Um, But that's uh, identifying the influencers, energizers, as well as blockers inside the company. Again, there are there are people inside an organization that everything seems to flow through. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And you've encountered these people in your career, Wanda. It's you know, there are, there are people that uh, others turn to for information, for advice, sometimes just for energy um, yeah. and to get pumped up. And these people are throughout organizations, but oftentimes they are very invisible. In fact, if you ask senior leaders uh, who those people are, they will miss many of those people. And they'll miss them because they're buried in the hierarchy many times. Sometimes they're introverts and not extroverts, um, but they are the people that make the organization hum. 
those are the people you want to identify in order to be culture ambassadors for your culture change effort. Okay. So, you know, I, I, uh, I've seen in many organizations today that were successful at changing their culture, they got those people uh, on board with that culture change effort, and they're the ones that are going to make it happen at the ground level. Um, we identify those people through a science called organizational network analysis, mm-hmm. um, which is a science that was created by um, it, it, the father of it really is Rob Cross, who's a professor at Babson College, and we do a lot of work with Rob uh, in looking at how does that communication flow happen throughout the organization. You can do this through surveying techniques, and we do a lot of this with organizations. You can also do it just by monitoring uh, internal communication like email or Slack or Teams. That's not quite as effective, but uh, it can give you some insight as to who those people are. Um, and and once you identify those people, again, you want those to those people to be on board with your culture change. Now, equally, you want to understand who are blockers inside the organization, and we we find that uh, a lot of culture change efforts are derailed by people who feel like their power is being usurped or, you know, their territory is being tread on, or for whatever reason, they're not on board with the culture change. If those people are high enough in the organization, they can really um, derail what you're trying to do. So you got to understand who those folks are too. And there are techniques you can use um, with organizational network analysis to uncover them as well. Great. Now I'm curious about how you uncover them. One of the things that I see leaders do too much time, too many times, is to spend all their energy on the blockers and not enough energy on the influencers so that you're never getting any positive momentum through the organization. And it seems like it's the risk, it's a little battle at the beginning. The proponents against the opponents and who's going to win the voice of the masses. Do you see the same thing? Yeah, and I profile some uh, companies and some CEOs. I was fortunate enough to interview several for the book that went through that and had to make some changes and tough decisions around certain people uh, who, just like Jim Collins said, you got to get the right people on the bus, right? These people were not willing to be on the bus uh, for these organizations and the culture change they wanted to, to have happen. Um, other times you can uh, convince those folks of what you're trying to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think depending on the situation, you've got to try to ascertain, you know, what's going to be best for the organization going forward. Uh, but I do, I have a whole chapter on ferreting out the skeptics and non-believers early um, because it is such a critical step. However, I tell people all the time of the 18 steps, that's probably the hardest one. Uh, Cause sometimes those skeptics are hiding in plain sight. they, I always like to say, uh, as a leader, sometimes the sun always shines up, and um, people will say the right, you know, the right thing to you and the right thing to your face. But down below, they can be a hurricane, right, and, and causing right. all kinds of havoc. And you have to, as a leader, I think, recognize where that might be happening. Do you know? Do enough skip level uh, uh, interviews and, and conversations so you can see where that might be happening. Well, and especially if the individuals involved uh, carry a good bit of political capital and are willing to use that to make sure that the messages they want heard are heard and everybody else is silent, it can be really difficult. Okay, so you talked about doing skip-level meetings. Do you have any other tactics for being able to ferret out these um, skeptics and non-believers? Well, the listening strategies will help there as well. I'm really in love with uh, new technology that 
combines natural language processing with artificial intelligence. And we have a number of um, platforms today that will allow employees to write out their sentiment, their feelings in their own words, and then have the system analyze those uh, those comments and then categorize them appropriately. Yeah. Um, in a lot of large companies, it's very cumbersome to read every single freeform comment, right? And even when people do, they often categorize them very generically, um, right. communication or leadership, right. and they don't get down to the real root of the issue. Um, what a good NLP engine will do is is uncover some of those issues. We, we found in one company, there was discrimination in the, the law department against Asian, uh, uh, Asian women, for instance. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that would sometimes be tough to, when you're reading through comments, to, to draw out. But the system was able to, you know, very accurately pinpoint that. And so some of those blockers will be uncovered through that process. Right, right. Okay. That's exciting, too, because I find, at least in my research, when I'm doing focus groups, which is another great way of listening. You have to be really careful that people don't sway each other in the room. It's such yes. a simple thing to have happen. And if somebody's a counter opinion, they tend to go silent when the majority is going in one direction or the other direction. So it can that the technology is actually a lovely way of getting a broader view. Okay, so we've got the planning part, which is really largely about a listening strategy and some other things, but we've got the building part, which is making sure we've got the skeptics and the non-believers and knowing where they are, making hard choices, doing something about it. What about the maintaining part? Well, this is a, 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 a whole phase that often gets ignored. Um, mm-hmm. There can be a lot of hoopla about building a new culture, but unless you maintain it, things can drift back to the way they were. And there's a number of talent practices that we list out in the maintain phase around onboarding and how you bring new employees into the culture change that uh, you've created. We also talk about the importance of relationships with onboarding new employees. It's one of the biggest predictors of whether somebody's going to flame out in year one or year two. They just never made the right relationships, the, the relationships with subject matter experts and people that can help them be successful. Uh, so that that's one aspect of maintain. Uh, we also talk about changing some practices around performance management, um, around your affinity groups. Your your ERGs um, can be very powerful places to make sure that that culture change is sticking and uh, and utilizing the leadership that inevitably exists in your ERGs inside the organization. And then I'm a, I'm a big believer in the power of talent mobility. Um, this is one talent development technique that I think gets um, ignored a lot of times in organizations, but it's the concept that you want to be moving your people around inside the organization as much as you can, particularly your high performers. Uh, too often we let managers hoard good talent happens all the time where, you know, and it's human nature. I'm sure I've done it where you've got great people working for you and you don't want them going anywhere. And the, you know, the concept of poaching talent is, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a, a forbidden one inside of a lot of organizations. Right. The high performance organizations that we work with, they encourage mobility by incenting managers to move talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the concept of poaching just doesn't exist. It's they get rewarded for, uh, you know, for hiring within. We make it so hard for employees to find a new job within a company, right? It's almost right. You're, you're dead man walking if, if uh, your manager finds out you've applied for other jobs inside the company, right? 
Uh, and you can be very um, pigeonholed into a, a salary band or a title, you know, or even the department that you're in. And we make it easier for employees to find new jobs outside the company. Right. It's the same for hiring. You know, we make it easier for managers oftentimes to hire outside than it is to hire inside. And so if you measure talent mobility and get that uh, that talent moving around, all of a sudden communication improves. Uh, employees see this more as a career rather than just a job. And they, they see there's other opportunities inside the organization. And so I, I think the uh, the maintain phase, yeah, you know, utilizing mobility in the maintain phase um, can be a very, uh, very successful uh, strategy. Yeah, I can underscore anybody looking at talent that they're losing from their organization. What I hear at all levels is the number one reason is I need something new to do. Mm-hmm. That's the big one. And that is a lost opportunity. You're right. You you were in trouble in most of my clients if you let your manager know that you're looking. And they also hide behind expertise. You know, you've got 10 years in this, so we can't possibly bring somebody in who doesn't have that 10 years experience because they won't know enough. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that happens too, Wanda. We often don't know the skills and capabilities that we have in the workforce. When we hire somebody into a role, that's the way we think about them. And we kind of, again, pigeonhole them into that role. When they have lots of skills and capabilities and talents that they brought to our company uh, from their earlier positions, for you know, a good example is do they know how to speak uh, another language? You know, it might not be used for the job that they're in, but that could be very useful when we're expanding the company. And right. until you have a skills database and a way to really understand what skills exist in the workforce, uh, you're probably not going to be able to find the right talent inside the company. That's right. That's right. The same is true about data analytics for that matter. Okay, Kevin, this is a great point to take a break. Um, I think what's fascinating to me about this one and the thing that resonates with me and working with leaders all the time is this notion that to do a cultural renovation as opposed to a transformation, you start not with an offsite or a retreat where you and your top trusted advisors sit around and make a decision about what the culture is moving to, but rather you start with a listening exercise that says to people within the organization, what's working, what do we keep? What's not working? What do we need to fix? And from there, begin the process of planning and then ultimately building and maintaining. So great example. All right. My guest today, Kevin Oaks, the book that we're talking about is Cultural Renovation. And Kevin is the CEO and co-founder of Institute for Corporate Productivity, I4CP. If you're interested in the research, there are tons of resources available on their website. When we come back, we're going to take this notion of culture and look at its implications for the return to work post-pandemic. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. 
All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome back. With me today is Kevin Oakes, CEO and co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, i4cp.com. And it's the leading authority on the best practices, I'm going to say, in human capital. What are the companies that are really doing well financially, doing with their human capital resources? Kevin is the author of a book called Culture Renovation, which is a study basically of companies that have succeeded in not transforming, but in adjusting, renovating, altering their culture, moving it to a new state. And what is it they did? We've just talked about three practices. One is listening. Don't start with the answer yourself. The second one is ferreting out skeptics and the non-believers and taking action according, transforming them, changing them, convincing them, or moving them. And then three is maintaining, which involves all of the human capital practices you already have existing and making sure you're using every one of those to move your culture, keep your culture where you want it to go. Now, what I want to focus on at the moment is this transformation of work and the work culture, something that you have called, I love this title, from the cube to the cloud. So I'm going to start with some of my observations. One is I think we're having a massive exodus of talent from organizations. It's certainly happening on all of my clients. And I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. I think it's about to get a lot worse I'm looking at people struggling to keep enough people in the building to keep the work going as it should be going. Um, And, you know, so I think what happens next and how we think about our role as leaders and how we treat people in organizations and how we think about the work itself, not just the space we work in, is going to make all the difference in whether we succeed or not. But Kevin, you're the specialist. You've been studying this. What are you seeing? 
Well, it's, it's exactly what our research is uh, showing, Wanda, that there is a talent exodus happening. Um, a lot of companies are very worried about it in the future, but they're already experiencing it today. And, you know, I think, I think what's interesting about right now is that most organizations, they, they know how to do in-person work and they know how to do remote work. What they don't know how to do is flexible or hybrid work. And so we're going into this, uh, this time period where employees have gotten a taste of what it's like to work remotely. We know that's successful. In fact, all of our research shows that most companies uh, did pretty well during the pandemic. They, they were able to figure it out. Not all of them, but most of them were able to figure it out. Um, and today, employees want choice. They want that flexibility. Now, some of them desperately want to be back in the office. You know, they want to be with other people. They want uh, the accoutrements of the office, the, the bandwidth of the network, the desk, whatever it might be. Others um, absolutely want nothing to do with the office. They want to work <laughs> remotely forever. Um, they might have child care or elder care responsibilities. There's a host of reasons, um, life situations, why employees you know, don't want to go back to the office. They're not looking forward to that commute. And then, you know, there's this in-between where there are, there are a lot of employees that want both. They want to be able to work remotely when they want to and, and uh, work in the office when they want to. And I think a lot of companies are struggling with that. They, um, they haven't had to deal with this in the past. It's, you know, for many, many organizations, they've uh, just had on-site employment and they haven't you know, had a, a robust remote workforce. And so as a result, you're seeing a lot of very prominent CEOs come out very strongly saying, I want my employees back in the office or, right. you know, d dictating at least certain days of the week that they want to be back in the office. And uh, it's, to me, it's just a fascinating time, time period. Time. Yeah. I think we've always had remote workers in organizations, but your word robust is an important one because they right. were in the satellite places and they got forgotten all the time. And it was fine if they were off doing their data programming, for example, or, or analytics or report writing, and it just came back into the office and it was okay. Right. That's very different than thinking about running a team where the team is genuinely collaborating, working, innovating, trading on each other, depending on each other. And some of them are in the office and some of them are out of the office. Yeah. I, I don't know that we know how yet. Anybody knows how to do that yet. Well, well. I've heard from a lot of CEOs, their rationale for wanting people back in the office is to improve collaboration right. and to improve innovation. And uh, frankly, that's, that's a misnomer. Uh, our research has shown that innovation actually improved during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic levels. Uh, collaboration actually improved during the pandemic than it was previously. And while there's benefits to being in person and face-to-face -face with folks, it's not an absolute. You know, you can have great success when people are remote, just like you and I are right now looking at each other. You know, we've all been accustomed to uh, Zoom and video conferencing uh, during the pandemic. Uh, it was not widespread before the pandemic, and now it's sort of second nature for a lot of us. And we're only a year and a half into it. Think how great we'll be at all of this when the technology improves and when our processes improve over the next couple of years. You know, we're going to see a lot of, I think, improvements and in innovation in how we, how we collaborate and innovate remotely. Yeah. I actually think, I mean, I have seen this in my remote work um, via whatever platform that you can get through some things faster 
and you can actually build some of the collaborative, use the collaborative tools, it may be better than we could ever do face-to-face. But we have to learn to use the tools and we have to have our IT departments turn the capability on as opposed to blocking it along the way. Now, I want to come back. You say your research is saying that people were more collaborative, more creative, more innovative, and more productive during the pandemic? Yeah, uh, most companies will say uh, vastly more productive during the pandemic. Now, some of that came at the expense of employee well-being. I think Mm -hmm. employees will say they probably worked more hours than they did previously, previous to the pandemic. But uh, productivity did not suffer during the pandemic for most companies. Uh, That's been proven over and over again, not only in our research, but in many others' research. Uh, and so I think the trick is how do we how do we maintain that going forward, maintain that level of productivity. Um, but uh, we also found that culture uh, improved in a lot of companies huh. during the pandemic. Um, what what many employees will tell you is that the level of empathy shown by managers and by leaders to the workforce uh, was greater than ever before. Um, they were. Uh, checking in on a regular basis and, you know, looking at not only uh, physical well-being, but mental and emotional well-being and, and other aspects of well-being during the pandemic. We also got a, um, a much better view of the people that we work with. Um, the, the business persona uh, is what we got used to when we only saw people in the office. But during the pandemic, we were zoomed into their living rooms, their kitchens. We saw their pets, their kids, you know, their parents. Uh, and you got a much better uh, holistic view of the individual. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of employees felt that uh, they knew their leaders better um, because of that, but also their coworkers. And so all of that, I think, helped with the culture of organizations. They felt a little bit more aligned with the purpose of the organization. But it's quickly eroding right now. You know, as companies uh, begin to force people back to the office, I'm just seeing it over and over and over again. All that goodwill is kind of going out the window these days. And I think that's what companies need to be cognizant of. Right. I agree with that one. I've seen companies where the empathy was really great at the beginning and it bought a lot of goodwill and a lot of connectivity and a lot of commitment and managers lost the plot as they started to get busier and busier and a little more frazzled themselves. Right. I've seen companies where it became the norm not to use your camera and to just rely on the audio so that everybody goes back to pretending that they're back in the office. So none of the gains of getting to know the whole person or there. Again, it's down to what gets encouraged, what becomes the standard practice. And I've also seen all those people working harder and harder and harder, not just because they're at home and can, but because they've lost so many colleagues and now they're doing more and more and more catch-up work, that that is killing any cultural advantage that you got in the pandemic. Yeah. Okay, so Kevin, give us the list of what not to do's. You've already alluded to one, but what are you seeing is are the downsides or the well, do-nots? As you mentioned, we just came out with this new study called From Cube to Cloud. And the very first recommendation we have from that study is that forcing people back into the office is a mistake. Uh, now, I know I'm going to rattle a lot of people with that, <laughs> with that finding, um, but what we're seeing in organizations today is companies 
telling their employee base, we want you in the office certain days a week or even every day a week. And there's a backlash from the employee base. Uh, Apple went through that very publicly um, a month ago. And I think that was a wake-up call for a lot of other organizations to say, hey, let's rethink our our back-to-office policies. I know Amazon changed theirs uh, just a few days after the very big you know, public outcry from Apple employees that they needed to be in the office three days a week. Uh, we're seeing it um, in some banks as well. And it's, you know, uh, been well documented that JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and uh, Morgan Stanley have been very adamant that they want all of their employees back in the office uh, full time. Whereas other banks like Citi is a good example has said, we're embracing flexible work and some people are going to work 100% remote. Some are going to be in the office all the time, but a lot of people are going to be in a hybrid environment. And so what I've been telling companies that are asking employees to come back to the office full time, uh, and I'm, I'm leaving out, you know, it's hard to sometimes talk about this in, in uh, general nature because I'm leaving out retail and manufacturing and healthcare, you know, where you've already had, you know, a, a lot of employees and frontline workers have to be on site. Right. Um, what I think companies are risking is attrition. And you you talked about it earlier. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a talent exodus and I'm seeing it every single day. People are leaving companies because they don't want to have to work on site. You're reducing your talent uh, candidate pool, um, the people that you can hire and your employer brand uh, probably is suffering a little bit when you take that stance. But you're also hurting diversity. And uh, I think most companies today are under a lot of pressure to be more diverse uh, as a workforce. And there's just no getting around it that if you're forcing people to be on site, you are limiting your ability to be more diverse. The companies that are embracing remote work, there's no barrier now to location, which was always a big barrier uh, for having a diverse workforce. Uh, So you've got to live with those downsides if you are looking at other perceived upsides from having people in the office. Right. Right. Okay. So not force it. That's the number one thing. Are you finding any practices that are actually really helping this hybrid state of the world? Yeah, there's um, there's a number of things I think companies are doing uh, to accommodate people who are in different places. So, for example, you've been in many meetings, Wanda, where you've got one or two people who are remote in the meeting, but everybody else is in the conference room. Uh, well, those remote people are basically silent, right? They mm-hmm. they don't feel like they can get a word in edgewise, and they're you know just not part of the crowd. Uh, what some companies are doing is saying if if just one person is remote, then everybody's remote, you know, and everybody goes to their offices and has has the meeting remotely uh, to sort of even that playing field. So that's mm-hmm. that's one thing some companies are doing. We also are seeing um, more of a hoteling concept um, mm-hmm. in organizations. Uh, there's a lot of companies who are looking at their physical space. And while we're not finding widespread, uh, you know, downsizing of, of uh, office space, what we are finding is a reconfiguration. And they're using existing space for customer meetings. They're using it for collaborative uh, meetings. And so there's more conference rooms that are being created, essentially, in, in collaborative spaces in these companies. And there's a downsizing of the desks in the company, but as a result, the hoteling or the, you know, the concept of reserving a desk is becoming more popular. Some companies have been doing this for years and decades, you know, where they 
they have employees come in and they don't have a, a, an assigned office. They simply uh, reserve a desk. Uh, you're going to see more and more of that going forward for right, sure. Right. I've seen companies do this hoteling and I've seen it backfire really quickly because some of us are habitual creatures and we like to come back to the same space and we like to have our stuff when we get there and a whole host of other things. However, if I'm part-time hybrid and part-time in the office, maybe that works. And it certainly breaks down the classic group that I talk to and the group that I don't talk to, you know, on the floor. So it's an interesting, um, Chris Kane, who's been a podcast guest and is a real estate specialist will argue that what we need is if we want people back at the office to do more collaboration, for example, then we need more space that encourages and fosters the collaboration or the natural bumping into each other or whatever else it is that you're trying to accomplish in the office. But we need that space and we don't have much of it anymore. Okay, um, so if everybody, if one or two people are remote, everybody is remote, go back to your desk, we'll do the meeting that way, and then nobody's at a disadvantage. Hoteling, any other practices you're seeing that are actually working? Well, the, yeah, the, the one thing that I, I uh, want to go back to that we were talking about earlier um, and that we called out in this report is that leadership skills need to change going forward as well. Um, companies are recognizing that for leaders to be effective in this kind of hybrid environment, uh, they have to be a little bit better at uh, managing remote collaboration, at being more inclusive as a leader, understanding different cultures, uh, for instance, and bridging um, you know these networks and you know bridging what what existed before, which was a lot of silos in organizations. Uh, those are skills that companies are beginning to train their leaders on. They're also, when they're hiring new leaders, they're looking for that skill set going forward. So I think you're going to see much more emphasis on on those skills by leaders. And we've been we've been trying to document that through infographics and other things that we're putting out to the marketplace that people can find on our website around some of those skills that leaders need. Okay. All right. Fabulous. I4CP.com if you want to know more about that. I think it's a tough one. Um, we're asking an awful lot of our leaders, particularly leaders in the middle of the organization. We, you know, some of them still have work to produce. It's not that they are full-time leaders in most organizations, and we expect them to generate ideas and be really good at developing their staff and coaching their staff. And not everything that's coming through falls on those leaders' heads. And now we're also asking for another set around the bridging the networks and around understanding their own remote skills. Yeah, I, you know, and one of the one of the recommendations we have in the report is you've got to trust your managers um, a little bit more than you are in the organization. Let the managers manage. Yeah, um, you know, this uh, having a blanket policy based on uh, roles or levels in the organization doesn't acknowledge the fact that every individual is different. They all have different life situations and managers, good managers anyway, they get that. They can work with individuals on what they're, what's most productive for them. It's not just where they work, it's when they work too. And we've been, we've become accustomed to working, you know, when it suits us. So I think we've got to have a little bit more trust in those managers to do what's right for the company and do what's right for the individual uh, and let those managers manage. Right. Well, I'm going to do my other pet peeve. In the pandemic, we talked about how much we change. And I think what we changed is where we do the work. I don't think we pull back and say, let's rethink how we do the work. Let's rethink what work we're doing and how we're doing it. I think there's some real gains to be made in that question. But 
that's maybe for another day and another time. Okay, um, fascinating here. So don't force people to come back. Get comfortable at doing the hybrid environment. Do some special training for your leadership skills so that people understand how to be a better manager, how to manage remote collaboration, how to be more inclusive, how to build bridges. Give your managers a little more freedom to work with the individual styles that any circumstances that they have on their team and trust them to do the job. And we have to add into that one all while managing well-being, the whole well-being, not just the right. um, you know stress levels. It's a lot bigger picture than that one. And that's a lot to do, an awful lot yep. to do. It is. Okay, I'm going to pivot, Kevin, because I want to ask one of my favorite questions at the end, which is what takes you out of your comfort zone? <laughs> um, well, you know, with, with some of the issues that we're talking about right now, it, it's, you know, the, the word unprecedented has been used and overused uh, during the pandemic. But a lot of these companies did not plan for what we're what we've experienced and are experiencing right now. Um, and so what takes me out of my comfort zone, I guess, is not having a whole lot to fall back on. That's why we keep trying to, you know, create research and we we leverage this network that we have of tens of thousands of HR executives. Uh, that's a it's a closed network, so there's uh, you know it's not uh, doesn't have vendors or consultants in the network, so it's a safe haven for them to share information. And we're trying to leverage that so that people can help each other through this very unplanned, unprecedented time period. But it is challenging, and when we're dealing with very very large companies like an Amazon, for example, uh, the scale at which some of this is happening uh, has never been done before as well. And so I, I enjoy it. It's exciting. You know, it's uncharted territory, but it definitely takes me out of my comfort zone. But I think when you're out of your comfort zone, that's where innovation and creativity and engagement happen. And uh, I see that with my own workforce. I see that with the companies that we're working with today. Uh, we get pretty fired up around trying to tackle these very, very tough issues. Right. Right. Yes. Unprecedented is, yes, you're right. It's been overused, but absolutely apropos here. And I love your fan. We didn't plan on it. We've never done it at this scale before, and we don't really have an awful lot to fall back on. So that means it's time to study, innovate, experiment, try. I think that's as clear of a statement as we can get. And I think you're going to find your employees to be pretty up for that, particularly your younger generation of employees. Maybe some of the older ones, too. You never know. All right. My guest today is Kevin Oakes. He is CEO and co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, i4cp.com. If you're fascinated by any of the topics we've talked about today, there are a number of resources on the website that I think you'll find useful references to some of the um, research findings. The book, Culture Renovation, is what we've been talking about. And the notion is that it is not a transformation of your culture, but a steady renovation. I like that analogy of it's like an old house, that you would not just go down and knock out, knock over, and start all over again. You would steadily move from one state to another state. And that the beginning place, the absolute first starting place, I just like this idea, is with a listening exercise. So that you're asking your employees at the top, at the bottom, in the middle of the organization what's working and what's not working. So that they're bought in in the notion of there's some things to fix. And they're also bought in on the idea that there's some things to keep. And I like your analogy, Kevin. It's like you wouldn't renovate the house without checking which is the load-bearing walls. You don't want to destroy the good stuff while you're in the renovation. 
That's right. um, and that goes on to making sure that we're planning in a proper way. And that means who we're planning with, as well as a maintaining phase that allows us to sustain the gains and to embed them in the human capital systems, if you will. And I love how we've pivoted that to From the Cube to the Cloud is the title of the newest research report. Number one strategy, I think, is don't force your people to come back. And then number two strategy is to get your management and leadership more comfortable with all the skills required for hybrid working. Yep. How's that? Exactly. An hour into five minutes. I, I hope I've captured some of the ideas. At any rate, Kevin, <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on for today. Thanks, Wanda. It's been great to be on. And sustain the good work. We all need as many ideas as we can get. Um, so thanks for joining us today. Join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. If you like this podcast, please give us a positive rating on your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to know more about how to apply these ideas, Check us out at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.